I reverence you, Holy Spirit, in your person, in your desire to break bread and manifest the revelation knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you right now for a cold cup of water tonight. Your word, O oh God, is water. Hallelujah unto our soul, God. It is refreshing, O oh God. Hallelujah. And we just praise you, Father God, right now for that word that will bring life and healing even into our bodies, O oh God. In the name of Jesus, yes, as we focus upon your uh, presence and your glory, O oh God, above all things, in Jesus' name. Amen. Praise the Lord. Hey, Dad, how's it going? <laughs> I'm glad we heard. Hey, how's it going, Kevin? You can't start yawning yet, Taylor. Because <laughs> you'll make me yawn. Praise the Lord. We're going we're gonna to endeavor to move on with David's tabernacle, some of the concepts of David's tabernacle that we were talking about when we uh, broke off last time. I'm not going to cover things we've covered in the past. You need to go back and listen to the previous messages. So I'm I'm building on the foundation that we built on the previous couple, two or three messages. So if you're lost a little bit tonight, you need to go back, okay, and listen to the messages. I don't believe you will be lost because the truth is pretty self-evident as we move through here. Um, again, I, I just want to let y'all know, you know why I'm here? I'm here because I love you. I'm not here for anybody's glory except that of God. Can I declare that to you all tonight? You know what? I'm tired. My soul would much rather be a lot of other places than right here. No, it would be. And I know you all would be too. Yes, Ken said, yeah, I'd rather be home in my easy chair right now. <laughs> Me too. But you know what? The Bible says we draw near to God draws near to us. That's what we're doing in this endeavor. I'm endeavoring to be faithful to what God's given to me. And I'm endeavoring to be faithful to Him. And in doing so, I have to be faithful to you. And so that's the reason why I'm here. I'm here, I'm here because I love God and because I love you guys. And uh, <clears throat> you know, if it's one person, then so be it. You know, as long as I know the Lord is in it. <laughs> you know. So praise the Lord. But if you'll just mix your faith tonight and expect to see with mine or kids, there's going to be great things covered tonight. Awesome things. So we talked about David's tabernacle and some concepts of it, and I told you that there was no way, no how we were trying, I was trying to present a, a full message, an entire and complete, uh, to deliver a complete understanding of David's tabernacle. We're presenting concepts of it and things that the Holy Ghost brings. And in fact, <clears throat> Really what we've done is spend most of the time talking about uh, the events leading up to the establishment of David's tabernacle because there is so much to learn about the anointing and presence of God and what you, and the do's and don'ts from a foreshadowing of the things in the Old Covenant to what we see now in the New, new Covenant. You know, God is, you know, God does not change. Did you know that God was the same God back in the Old Testament that He is today? Yeah. Did, did you ever stop to think that God hasn't changed His concept or His perception of things? Whenever He was faced, faced with Moses, whenever He spoke with Abraham, when Abraham was a friend of God, whenever He you know, uh, 
ministered through David so strongly as he did, man after his own heart, right on up into John the Baptist and Jesus and Paul and the Apostle John at the end of the New Testament. You know, God is not, he, he's not changed, folks. He is the same God, and the things that he instituted in the way of principles and, 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 and if you will, a manner of conduct and things that you do in order to host his presence, in order to protect and guard his anointing, and to engender a stronger uh, move on his, uh, from his behalf on yours, it's the same God, no different. So we can look at the things in the Old Testament and learn, amen? We can learn a lot from that. And that's what we've been doing to this. Because I believe that the Spirit of the living God has told us that we are about to experience revival yes. in this church, yes. in this body, in this community, and in this nation. Yes. And, but i got to tell you, before that anointing is released in its fullness, we have got to come to a place of reverence and fear of the living God like we've never known before. And I tell you, there are lessons in that through this process, through this, you know, talking about the concepts of David's tabernacle. And that's why we're talking about it. It's not because I thought it was just a, a neat thing to talk about. It's because I feel like the Holy Ghost has put it on my heart to, to talk about it. So if we go on into the next couple weeks, then we go on in the next couple weeks talking about this. So we'll see where all we, got, we go. The Lord's given, given me quite a bit. I will tell you, too, though, that I have actually borrowed, you know, from some concepts from a minister that everyone that has probably familiar with, Perry Stone, an excellent minister of the gospel. I've proven him out in, in many respects. I'm not saying I'm in 100% agreement with everything the man brings forth, but I'm telling you, he is a, 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 a wonderful and is a, a minister of the gospel, and he is a very much an astute person of the Word of God. <clears throat> and uh, you can trust, you can trust that anointing there. Okay? And, uh, but anyway, there's some good concepts that I borrowed from him. There's no sense of reinventing the wheel. The Holy Ghost is a teacher, not us. Now, he gives us to be a, a spokesperson on his behalf. But he's the teacher. So I brought some concepts as it pertains to some of the things I want to talk to you tonight. Not everything, because the Holy Ghost you know, filled in a lot of gaps, too. Man, there's some good things we're going to talk about tonight. I believe when we last, last left off, we actually talked about uh, the end of the occupation of the presence of God, the containing, the controlling of the presence of God into the Temple of Dagon, you know, which represented... The enemy of God, you know, and, and if you look at today, it, it, into today's um, image, it represents the devil and his cohorts working to control the anointing of God. So what does the ark of God represent? It represents his presence. It represents his anointing. It represents his potential. His power on behalf of the people, having been lost because of the people's disobedience, and then actually brought in under captivity, by the enemy and put into a situation of idolatry in subjection to it. It's no different today, folks. Idolatry is the same as it was back then. Now, we may not call it Dagon, and we may not call it Baal, and we may not call it Ashtaroth, 
But idolatry is the same. The principles are the same. The result is the same. If anything but God is glorified, His presence, His anointing, His power is made null and void in our midst. It's brought into captivity. And it's not because they're greater than Him. You understand what I'm saying? It's not because that power is greater. It's because we forfeit that potential in our midst whenever we put other things ahead of Him. It's not that God's power is less, folks. Don't get me wrong. We saw the picture of what happened because that idol fell before the presence of God. Not once, but twice. And the second time it fell, it broke you too. Broke the hands, the head, and the hands off. There's a lot of prophetic symbolism there. Okay? So that's what we left off talking about and how the fact that Dagon was idolatry in its simplest form and it's in, in idolatry it is simply this. If I define it, it's the control of the anointing and limitation to its manifestation and power. That's what idolatry equals. Idolatry equals control of the anointing of God in limitation to its manifestation and power. So what I can say is with a lot of assurance, assurance that if we are having issues in the manifestation of the power of the anointing of God, I can pretty solidly say that we need to be looking for idolatry in our midst. Some things are going to come out of my mouth tonight. I'm just declaring. Some things are going to come out of my mouth tonight that have never come out before. I just declare that things are going to come out that are going to, that is going to be a sword to divide asunder truth from false things. In my own understanding tonight. Thank you, Holy Ghost. So I just endeavor to do that, Holy Spirit. Help me. So we need to be very, very concerned with this concept, idolatry. When we're talking about the anointing, when we're seeking the greater presence and manifestation of God, we need to look for what, for that which controls, for that which robs, for that which divides and moves out from our presence, or from our, our midst, the presence of God. Amen or only? And then we talked about how God's hand was heavy upon the Philistines because of it. It, it, it said that even his hand was so heavy to the point that, that you know, judgment came upon him in the form of mice and in tumors. Talk about those tumors actually from the original Hebrew meaning hemorrhoids. And they were so big they could even make golden statues, you know, golden idols of these things, golden images of them because they were so gross and terrible. Anyway, we won't dwell on that. <laughs> okay, so in 1 Samuel chapter 6 then, the leaders decide, the leaders in the Philistines decide to send the ark back. So in the first place it goes, we see a chronicle of, of the movement of the presence of God back into, the, back into the midst of the people of God. First it comes to a place called Beth Shemesh. And we see here in this that although they receive it with joy, and man, they're happy. These are the people of God here, folks. And here it comes, can you imagine, the ark of the living, of, of the covenant, the ark of the living God, the presence of the living God coming back into their midst. They're joyful, they're wonderfully excited to receive this back into themselves. But the problem is, is that they had no knowledge, they were ignorant in terms of how to treat and respect the presence of God. And you can look at it. And the reason I can share, 
can say that is because the foundation of that comes from the fact that in 1 Samuel 3, 1, you'll recall, in those days the word of the Lord was rare and prophetic visions were not widespread. Right there tells you that they had no ability to be trained and taught in the thing, in even just the elementary things, in how to handle the anointing, and how to respect it, and how to honor it, and how to host the presence of God. There was rare, the word of the Lord was rare. Prophetic visions were not widespread. That was said earlier. So that's how I can say it. They did not know how to properly treat or respect the presence of God. And here's a very important lesson here. There is a dire need today, even, for teaching. A dire need for teaching. I believe that the that the, um, the apostles, particularly in the Gospels, wrote the concept of Jesus and what he did in terms of putting teaching first for a reason. Jesus went about teaching, preaching, and what? And healing. But it's teaching first. I believe that Jesus, more than anything, was a teacher first. And why? Because this is a perfect example. Because the lack of knowledge, ignorance, can lead to death. My people perish for lack of knowledge, is what the word says. For ignorance. And i got to show you a perfect example of that. We, we have to learn the proper order of worship and honor of God and pass this on to our generations today. That did not happen back then, and because of it, the people of Beth Shemesh suffered a horrible judgment. The, the younger generations today are experiencing the same thing, folks. And in this, but in this story, 50,000 of them died. Why? Because even though, and the thing is, these people received the, the presence of the Lord with great joy. They were what? It was wondrous to think about the Lord returning back into the presence. It wasn't because they dishonored God. They, from an intentional standpoint, it was because they lacked the knowledge to, to handle and host the presence of God the way He had told them to. They couldn't be obedient because they didn't have the knowledge of what was ordered. Okay? And because of that, they looked into the ark and over 50,000 of them died because of it. And in my opinion, again, thus said Greg, I believe it's because of ignorance. That's why they died. And I believe God shed a tear over it every time that kind of stuff happened. Because the fathers and the, and the, the elders did not pass on the knowledge to the next generation. They did not honor God above themselves. Just like it all started out with Eli, the priest. He honored his sons more than God. So then we skip it, but I'm just going to stop for just a second and just camp a little bit on, if you went over and looked at Titus chapter 2, that's what I'm talking about. We don't have time to look at it tonight, but you guys go, please, and, and, and open up Titus and look at chapter 2. Folks, we have a responsibility to the younger generations. We have a responsibility to the youth to train them up in the way they should go. Not just our own children, but all manner of people that would be open unto this. We have to train them in these ways. And you go to Titus chapter 2, and I'll tell you what, it lays it straight out. You know, there's so many things that we look at in today's generation and we make, make light of and make comment about as, as 
elders, it's folks that are older and, and could be their parents. Things about how they dress, about how they handle themselves sexually, about how they, you know, have a lack of commitment, no work ethic. And you know whose fault that is? That's not the kid's fault. It's because we aren't propagating the knowledge to those people, those poor kids. They're lost in so many respects. I want you to read Titus chapter 2, and I'll tell you what, it'll, it'll put a light of fire behind us. We need to talk to this younger generation. We need to cultivate their understanding along the lines of honor and esteem and value and virtue and truth, most importantly. Okay, so then the, the, the ark of God, then, it becomes unbearable to the people of Beth Shemesh because of what ends up happening, because of their ignorance. And so then they're like, hey, someone come down and get this. We, 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 we've suffered great loss and are at a loss for what to do. So then it goes to Kirith Jerum. So people come down and get it and bring it up to Kirith Jerum. And it's taken to a man's house named Abinadab. And again, folks, what we're learning here is we're learning precious, important things about how, to, how not to handle the presence of God. <laughs> how not to do the things when it comes to, to experiencing the presence of God. His power, His anointing. Because there's wonderful lessons here. So being taken there then implies something about Abinadab because they purposed to take it to his house. It wasn't that it just, that it just came to Abinadab's house. They purposed to take it to Abinadab. And if you look at what Abinadab's name means, it means my father is willing. Folks, before anything, it takes a willing heart. It takes someone who is willing to do whatever it takes to host the presence of God. To get things back in order. To bring them back into the alignment that God has for us. It takes the willingness to be obedient. Simple obedience. That's what it takes. And to me, that's what a big dad represents. That's what his name represents. My father's willing. And so we have, but here's the deal though. There's a lesson here. We need to first learn how to host the presence of God. How to host it. This is the first lesson, I believe, as we're seeing the journey of the presence of God's return back into the people. You have to first learn, so you have the ignorance represented here at Beth Shemesh. Then you see it elevated to a lesson of learning to host the presence of God in Abinadab's house. And so what i got to ask is, like Abinadab's name implies, are we willing? Are we willing hosts? Of the presence of God, of His anointing, of His plans and purpose. Are we generous with our space, with our person, our agenda, our programs? Are we willing to, as a former, as a minister that used to come here uh, years ago said, to host the holy guest? Y'all remember that? The holy guest? I love that. It was a wonderful message. Because that's what he is. He's a guest. We need to look at him that way. And how would you host a guest? You don't host them the way you host people you know all the time. You clean that. I mean, you're going to that house doing everything you can to clean every nook and cranny, straighten every chair, straighten every picture, do everything you can to roll out the carpet of wonderful food, 
and, and refreshment and, and a good smelling atmosphere. Amen? That's a wonderful sermon. Y'all remember that guy? What was his name? Uh, John, uh, not Chambers. <laughs> John Edwards. Jonathan Edwards. He's from Wales. Talked about the Holy Guest. And it was awesome. But here's the second lesson. So Abinadab, my father is willing. Then here's his son that gets appointed. His name is Eleazar. Guess what it means? God is helper. Because if you have a willing heart, God is there to help. I, so that's why I see the connection there. We're, we're hooking up the trains, if you will. My father is willing to offer help. If you want to put it together that way, you can say that too. Because what they did was they didn't just put in, they didn't just bring the Ark of the Covenant into the house. They brought it in with a purpose to consecrate someone who would be responsible to guard it. His name was Eleazar. He was the son of Abinadab. And that, we're going to learn that that wasn't all Abinadab's uh, sons. So I don't know what it was. It, I, I mean, there was something about Eleazar. I think it had to do with his name. God is helper. I love that. Something about Eleazar. Okay? Uh, of all the sons, he gets chosen. Did you know that Uzzah and Ohio were also Abinadab's sons? The one that Uzzah, the guy that tried to uh, hold the ark and he ends up getting judged and killed because of it? They were also Abinadab's sons. But they didn't get chosen. It was Eleazar. And what he was chosen to do was to take care of the ark. And the word care from the Hebrew here means guard it. Folks, the second lesson we need to learn after we learn how to host the presence of God is we next need to learn how to guard the presence of God. We need to learn how to guard the anointing of God when it's, you know, when it's here in our midst. And I mean, we need to come to the place that at all costs we're going to guard the presence. We need to be like Eleazar. Because what you see from 1 Samuel chapter 7, verse 2 on is that 20 years with the presence of the living God in Abinadab's household, all the while in the Azar, guarding and protecting it. For the time that would come before it would be rightfully moved. Twenty years. Man, that's a long time. Do you think Eleazar had plans for twenty years of his life to be spent guarding the Ark of the of the Covenant? I don't even think he probably planned for that. But nonetheless, he was consecrated for that by his father, who was willing. Hallelujah. Man, I love that. 20 years passed. Well, the thing is, folks, I believe that the 20 years can represent a lot of things here from a prophetic standpoint. But one thing that certainly it represents is a significant amount of time for Israel's heart to come to a repentant posture. For the nations to heart, to come to the place. And it says that, that after 20 years that Israel repents. And you read, you can read this in 1 Samuel 7. It says that they repent. And that word there doesn't just mean the regular repent. It means to wail. If you look at the Hebrew, it means to wail. Israel comes to the point that they are broken before the living God. Desiring after restoration. They are wailing after it. And they begin to seek God. 
And so then what happens is, is we see the real condition of Israel based on Samuel's instructions. Because when Samuel the prophet sees this happening, then of course he's at a place where he's constantly watchful because God's anointed him in that place and in a place to declare the truth to these people. He sees the repentant nature and the potential for what God is going to do here. But at the same time, his instructions convey very clearly the position that Israel's heart was in at the time. And I want you to listen to him. There's three things here he tells them. The first one is, and I feel like this applies today, folks. This isn't just a story for the, for, uh, uh, the old to talk about the wonderful things here that these people went through. This is a story that has application today, right now, in this church, in this body, in our families. And listen to what he says. The first thing is, get rid of the idols. If you really want to seek God, if you really are, are, are crying after, with every fiber of your being, for the, the restoration of the fullness of the presence of God in your midst, and the intimacy of that, of His uh, presence then you, number one, get rid of the idols. Number two, dedicate yourselves to God and Him only. Number three, worship Him alone. No more dividing away your, your worship to anything else but the living God. That's it. Three things here. So you can see the, the real condition of Israel based on the three things He tells them. 20 years it took for him to come to the place that that waned to where, to where repentance could be manifest. So then Samuel orders them to gather at Mizpah. And Mizpah means the watchtower. Mizpah means the watchtower. He orders them to gather. Folks, we, we are at a place, we need to be at a place of watchfulness for this occurrence. We need to be at a place that we are watching for this release and this potential in people's lives, folks. And lead them to this experience. Where, number one, they offer a drink offering. They pour it out. And in my opinion, what the drink offering represents is a drawing of the word of the living God. The truth. Because it says that the truth shall set you free. And that pouring out of that water, the water represents the word in the New Testament. In many respects, it represents the Spirit of God too. But when I see that water poured out, to me, my heart just spoke of the Word of God coming forth back out of them again. I mean, symbolically, in a prophetic symbolism of the manifestation and transpiration of the Word of God to bring a freedom back into them again. A drawing of that Word of truth. And number two, they confess their sin. Those are the orders that Samuel gives them. And then we see what happens because they were at a place of great concern for the Philistines who were going to wipe them out. And then after they did this, then we see that God fights the battle for them as he did in days ago. And, and just routes the Philistines. Just like they did, did back in the day. Before the word of God became very rare. And prophecies and visions were rare. <laughs> so then we must move on. Israel demands a king then after that. You know, it wasn't enough. That wasn't God's, that wasn't God's best, folks. And God tried to convey that to the nation through Samuel. 
He said, look, folks, you want a king? Listen, this is what's going to happen to you if you want a king so bad. And he goes and iterates all these things, man, that, that the nation is going to fall under because of it. But nonetheless, man, the, the nation of Israel looked at all the other nations and said, they all have kings and it's really cool and we want a king. This is the great version. And so we want one too because it's cool to have a king. Rather than depend upon the voice of the living God to lead them, they wanted a, 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 a leader between that voice and them. And it was a king. But nonetheless, God, man, oh my goodness, his mercy endures. He, he goes ahead and goes with it, and he tells Samuel, you dictate to it, or you, you elucidate to it exactly what's going to happen, the price they're going to pay to have this. And nonetheless, Israel said, I, we want it. So they give him, and we all know what happens there. They demand the king, and Saul is, is anointed, and then chronicled through the following chapters after this. For a number of chapters, we see that, that you know the exploit or the things that happened. Uh, with Saul as king. Things go well for a while. God is basically honored, if you will. The people carry out his plans in general. Then Saul disobeys. Didn't take it very long. He disobeys me. <laughs> and here we go again. And we start the whole cycle over again. So then, and, and as a matter of fact, the, the disobedience goes to such a place that, it, that very quickly God disavows Saul as king and tells Samuel. And Samuel has to tell him that. And Samuel has to recover. It takes him a long time. He grieves over Saul. Saul is like a son to him. And he grieves and grieves. And finally the Lord is like, Samuel, when are you going to stop grieving over Saul? I've already told you, we, I, I, he is, I this, I've removed the anointing off again. He's no longer king. I need you to gather yourself up and go and anoint for me a man after my own heart. And his name was David. And so we know, a lot of us know that story where he goes to the, to the home of Jesse. He goes through all of his sons and he comes down to the shepherd. He comes down to the one who wasn't there for the promotion. He comes down to the one who was out tending to business. He comes down to the one who was the smallest of stature, the most uncomely. Amen? He comes down to the one who is after his heart first, not after promotion. And that's David. Oh my goodness. There's so much to learn in that. And then Samuel pulls out his horn and he anoints him. Isn't it interesting that the anointing of God, and it said that the power of God came upon David when, that, when Saul, when Samuel anoints him. It says the might and power of God came upon him then. But isn't it interesting, man, this is a little bit of a rabbit trail, but isn't it interesting? I think this will minister to all of us. Isn't it interesting that even though the power of God, the anointing came on David to be king, it was a long process of time. Yeah. In battle before the reality of that occurred in the natural. Amen? Mm -hmm. Amen? Can anybody identify with what I just said? Mm -hmm. Has God anointed you, gifted you for something? For a specific purpose? Is the power of God resident within you to accomplish exploits for His kingdom that you have yet to see? 
Huh? Yeah. I gotta tell you, there's a lot to learn in the story of David. My goodness. My goodness. One of the biggest lessons is honor. You look at David, my goodness. He had so much of a right to dishonor Saul. Saul was he was a terrible, terribly disobedient person. To the point he became demon possessed. I mean, my goodness, he tried to kill David. After, I mean, you know, and there David is, you know, I will not, you know, this, uh, uh, or come against God's anointed, but yet there he was, the anointed of God. Oh my goodness. Such a man of honor. Such a man of integrity. That even to the point after Saul died, when the guy comes and tells him that I killed Saul because he told me to kill him, that David had that guy killed because of and said, let, let it not be said that I, I came against the anointed of God. You did. You brought it on your own head. That's how much honor they would have for the anointing of God. See, you know, people want to say, well, what was his honor for? It was for the anointing. That's what he kept saying. Let not be, I will not touch the anointed. I will not come against the anointed. He didn't just say, I'm not going to touch the king. I'm not going to come against the king. He said, I'm not going to come against that whom God has anointed. See, David respected the anointing above all things. The anointing. Man, there's a huge lesson to learn in that. Help us, God. Then he finally assumes the throne in 2 Samuel. Man, we're getting to the establishment of David's tabernacle. Praise the Lord. So he finally assumes the throne in 2 Samuel. But it's been a good journey, though. We've had a journey this way because there's a lot to learn. Right? I mean, have, 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 do you, we've learned a lot about what not to do in terms of the anointing of God and posting the, you know, what, and the lessons that are learned and posting the presence of God and so forth. The do's and don'ts, if you will. Now we lead up to the establishment of David's tabernacle. And in 2 Samuel, then, chapter 6, so all number of chapters. <clears throat> They, we see that chronicled here that David and his young army, and actually it was, it was, it was Levites. It was comprised of some Levites. So it was actually some priests that said young men. So David took the strongest of who he had. They set up to 30,000. Man, that's a lot of people to go do something. And it says that he goes down to bring up the ark. But the problem was, is his, even though his heart was right, he handled it wrong. He handled it wrong, wrongly. Abinadab's sons were chosen to guide the ark upon the cart. And that's the next thing they did wrong, too, is that they put it on the cart. I don't want to get ahead of myself here. But Uzzah, or Uzzah, however you say his name, and Ahio. Not Ohio, but Ahio. They're both also Abinadab's sons, Eleazar's brothers. Eleazar, remember, was the one who was put in charge for 20 years to guard the ark. They. For whatever reason, probably because they lived with the ark for 20 years, David decides to allow them to be the ones to personally escort the ark. They take the ark and they put it on a cart. And we know that it destroyed the cart that it came on from the Philistines, you know, before, or that, that, that they brought it up to before. They destroyed that cart and they made another cart. So they're still doing, they're still disobeying the law of God because it's very explicit that the ark was to be carried by the priests on poles. And those poles were never to be removed from the ark. And yet here the ark is, had no poles in it. 
They put it on a card. Okay, so here's the deal. Regardless of the heart and intentions, because if you read that story, you'll see that David and those men went down with great rejoicing. They went down with the cymbals going and the trumpets going and a party going on. All the way down there to the point that they get the ark and they're bringing it back. Oh, praise the Lord. The Lord's presence is being restored in our midst. And I mean, man, that's a picture of someone's heart after God, is it not? It is. Folks, it is. David's heart was after the presence of the living God. He wanted it restored. And he, he got the excitement engendered in the people of Israel for it to be restored. And here we can come to the place where we're going to go down and get it, boys. Amen? Y'all see that? You can go read that for yourself, all the details of the story, but they go down there. But here's the problem. Regardless of the heart and intentions, God's presence wasn't handled correctly. God's presence wasn't handled correctly. Number one. Seal and it's these are the lessons we can learn. Number one, seal and excitement can never replace obedience. You can have as much zeal and as much excitement as you want to have for the things of God and still disobey. That's a huge lesson. You can be excited about God, genuinely love God with all your heart, but yet you, you, you still, and I think it just it was out of ignorance. David did not consult the scriptures. He did not consult the people. And I think the knowledge was gone to a great degree among the camp. So he goes down out of zeal and excitement. And folks, I can't tell this enough how important it is that we as leaders of our homes, of the things going on in ministry-wise in this church, we can't in zeal and excitement get out ahead of the instruction of God. We, we, we can't leave and go execute something that we don't have instruction for. We need to make sure that we've consulted the Word of God in it. That's the lesson. Zeal and excitement will never replace the simple obedience. Number two, he, he didn't use the right people. He used Uzzah and Ohio. Those dudes weren't even of the, of the right, they might have been Levitical, but they weren't even the right tribe. Because it was the Cahorites that were the only ones that were to handle the ark according to the law of God. Only one clan, not tribe, but one clan of the tribe of Levi could handle that. Only one clan could handle it. Well, these boys weren't even part of that clan. And it doesn't make any difference whether or not they camped with the presence of God for 20 years. If they're not the right guys to, to handle the presence, they're not the right guys. But yet David, you know, he didn't know and he thought, well, they've been with the presence of God for 20 years, so let's use them. Man, I can think of a lot of applications to today's church activities and the things that we do. Well, you know, it seems like it's gone on for 20 years like this, so let's go ahead and proceed with this same thing. And here's the problem, I think. You know, they, you know, Uzzah and, and Ohio, they had been familiar with the ark, and perhaps this led to a lack of proper honor and respect. You know, when they say familiarity breeds contempt, and, and it's not that they dishonor the presence of God, but it's when you become so familiar with something, you can forget the SOPs, <laughs> you know, the need for fear, because you become familiar. Not fearful. You become familiar. 
And I think maybe that might have been the deal with us in Ohio. They were so familiar going in and out and seeing the ark of God right there in Eleazar with his sword. You know, and whatever, you guarding the presence of God, like he was consecrating to do. But they got so used to it in their midst that they didn't, they probably just were ignorant to, to know how to properly honor that presence. And, and then, that's right, they didn't try to find out. They didn't try to find out because, the, you know why I think? is because the, the knowledge was not amongst them. It wasn't there. The word of the Lord and prophetic vision were rare. That's what it says. That's why we're talking about this right now. Because it ain't going to be rare here. Hallelujah. Number three, the poles had been removed, which represents the manner by which it was, the ark was to be born. It was to be born on the shoulders and the backs of people, not animals. That was number three. The poles had been removed. How much of what we are doing from the perspective of the presence of the living God and His anointing are we allowing to be born on everything else except our own responsibility? Except our own accountability to it? Number four, it was born and put on boards and big wheels. That's all a cart is. I got this from Perry Stone and I got was undone when I heard this. Because this is absolutely true. Because it, the church, in so many ways today, is run by boards and big wheels. There's nothing about the anointing and, and the presence of the living God that is to be carried and borne out and planned and schemed by, by men's agendas. By their purpose. For their glory. But yet, you know, so much of what we see in today's contemporary church is boards and big wheels. And they're trying to carry the presence of God. You know what happens? I don't, let us just say the word, the name Uzzah. So then I've got a question to ask. What about today? What are the implications here in this story? I've got two perfect examples because a lot of people would say, "Well, Greg, that is the that is the uh, the trappings of the Old Testament and the Old Covenant." And I would say to you, "Thus saith Greg, no, he's the same God yesterday that he is today. If he if things like that happened to you know under his his authority back then, then the potential for them to happen is the same today." But for the mercy of God. But for His mercy. And let me give you two perfect New Testament, New Covenant examples. Let me bring up two names, Ananias and Sapphira. Amen or only? Ananias and Sapphira. I don't have to talk to you more about that. Let me give you a second example. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Paul talks to the church there at Corinth about how they're conducting themselves in terms of uh, the covenant meal, the Lord's Supper. And he tells them that you are not rightly discerning the Lord's body because of that. In verse 30 of chapter 11 in 1 Corinthians. That is why many among you are weak and sick and a number of you have fallen asleep. 
You know, to me, I don't see the difference between that versus what happened in the Old Testament when you didn't handle the presence and host the presence of God correctly. Huh? I mean, do, do you, am I seeing something wrong here? But for the mercy and grace of God. But for the mercy and grace of God. Thank God. But for the mercy of God. There's a reason why we're talking about this. Because we want the full presence of the living God in our midst. And it will not come until we learn how to host it. Until we learn how to guard it. Until we learn how to fear it. And I say it. I mean him. David learned the fear of the Lord. In 2 Samuel chapter 6 and verse 9 it said that he corrected himself. Because it said that whenever Uzzah reached out to try to steady the anointing on that cart being carried by the ox, being carried incorrectly, though their hearts were right in what they were doing, they were still disobedient. And Uzzah tried to reach out as it says that the ark shook and was about to fall off the cart. Or at least that's the implication. He reaches out to steady it. Oh, oh, we don't want the ark to fall. And when he did, the, the, the power of God came out and consumed him. Killed him dead right on the spot. And I know that that's a hard thing to understand in the process. When you think about a loving God and a merciful God. But the problem is, is that wheels have been set in motion that require obedience for his presence to be manifest. For his power to be, to be properly hosted. And respected and feared. It's, and it's not that he's raining out judgment. It's just that the judgment is already there in our disobedience. And when that disobedience comes into contact with the living God, it says that you know evil and God can't be in the same place. So one of them gets displaced, and it ain't God. <laughs> Y'all see that? And God sheds a tear over. I'll guarantee you he does, folks. You know, I, all I've got to say is we have laws on the books, right? You know, things happen as a result of those laws being on the books. You can't go back and change the law because you don't want certain people to suffer the penalty or consequence for disobeying that law, right? No matter how much you love that person. No matter how much they were ignorant to the law. What does it say? Ignorance is no excuse of the law. Same for spiritual laws, folks. It's no different. Same for physical laws. If I go out here and jump off this building, I'm disobeying a physical law of gravity. And I'm going to break my legs and potentially kill myself in doing that if I don't have a nice cushy thing to fall on. I disobey a law. And the whole time, you know, and God's up there going, oh my goodness. You know, just, just be obedient to what I told you to do. For what you know. And if you don't know it, you can die too. That's the problem here. Ignorance. And we don't want to be ignorant. We don't want to be ignorant. We want to know. And it says in verse 9 of chapter 6 of 2 Samuel, I want y'all to go read it sometime. It says that David learned the fear of the Lord. It says that it came upon him then. At first he was angry. Here we 
are, God damn here, trying to bring you back into the rightful place of your belonging in our midst. And you're going to judge a person who's escorting your presence? I mean, that's does say great, but that's kind of how I can hear David's heart of that. Because that's what my heart would say. You see what I'm saying? That was a big dead son. You know, he wasn't just anybody. He lived with the presence of God for 20 years. But it says David then feared God. All of a sudden, what the fear of God consumed him. Oh man. And I guarantee you what weighed over him after he got off that anger emotion was, oh, 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 I did not consult the law. I did not consult and ask God how to do this correctly. I did not seek counsel and wisdom in this. And so then what happens is, man, this is, not, this is an awesome, awesome, awesome story. There's so many things here. Well, before we go on, let me just say, we need to learn the fear of the Lord before we can expect His presence to increase among us. We need to come to a place like David to where the fear of the Lord is a full revelation in our midst. And when we come to that place, I will guarantee you the presence of the living God will fill this place. It will fill your life. It will fill my life. Because the thing is, but for His mercies, <laughs> we can't have the manifestation that we want with no fear, with no honor and respect, with no obedience. Why? Because we don't want us to happen to us. We don't want Ananias and Sapphira to happen here. We don't want you know, things to happen like Paul's talking about in 1 Corinthians, about when we don't rightly divide, discern the body of Christ. Man, I could preach a long time on that, but I can't go there. So in 1 Chronicles chapter 15, David consults the scriptures. So he's, he, uh, and I skipped over about Obed-Edom, and it's awesome, it says that, that David, when he feared, feared God, after he saw what happened to us, he got over his anger for a second, he feared God came over him, the fear of God came over him and said, then they moved the ark, they were like, okay, we can't take, take the presence of God back, because we don't know what we're doing, so let's park it here at Obed-Edom's house. You know, and he was an honorable man, a man that feared God, too. And he, they parked it there, and it was there for three months. And it said, man, it brought wonderful blessing to his household. Oh, my goodness. It said it brought favor of his household. And like one minister said, you know, it said the chickens laid more eggs, and the goats had more goats, and sheep had more sheep, and daughters got prettier and prettier. And well, that's what he said. Well, that's kind of sexy stuff. <laughs> anyway. So 1 Corinthians 15, then, we skipped over all that part. And now we see that David, after he had gone back those three months, guess what you think he was doing? The scripture's not real clear that I can see. But what do you think David's doing for those three months? He, he's searching out the, the wisdom. He's probably fasting. He's probably repenting before God. He's probably putting his nose in, in the stone that David had carpet back then. In the rocks and being like, God, we want your presence. We want your presence. We want your presence. But how is it that we are to rightly bring and establish your presence in our midst again? How is it three months of that? That's, that's in my opinion now. The scripture's not clear what he did those three months. But how, how can you not say he didn't do some sort of soul searching? Man. 
So I feel like he consulted scriptures. He probably fasted. He probably did much praying, much soul searching. And then guess what? He does it right this time. He gathers the, he gathers the people up. He gets, number one, he gets the correct people to handle the ark and to handle it the way the law said to handle it. And that was to be carried on the shoulders of the priests and only certain ones of those. Number two, he involves the whole of Israel in the event. He didn't just take 30,000 boys down there this time. He got up the whole nation and he got them all together and whipped up and he said, Folks, we're going to go get the presence of God because we know I know how to get it right this time. And it ain't going to be a failure. It's going to be that we are bringing back the living God in our midst again. To be restored in His glory. To be restored in His power on your behalf. Let's all go do it together. I mean, that's, that's, that's a great version, but I like that. Because I can just totally see that. That's what it said. He whipped up the whole nation. And said he got the whole of Israel in the event. They went rejoicing to restore the presence of God in their midst. And I've got to say, and I've said it many times, and I want to keep on preaching it and teaching it, and that is that God intends and will, will, will have his way in the fullness of the ministry of the church as a body-wide activity and not a pulpit ministry first. Only thing. It is the glory of God's kingdom is the glory that is manifest in the corporate anointing. Because it's much stronger than the part that I have or the part that you have. We bring our streams together. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. And so here the whole body gets brought together to go get the presence of the living God. Because he has the wisdom and the knowledge and knows what to, how to obey, do things right this time. Number three, he sacrificed. When he goes, he goes down to the to Obed-Edom's house. And he probably takes that, that, that cart that was there before. This is the say great version, but he probably hacks that thing up in a million pieces, man. And scatters it to the four winds. And he tells the exact priests of the right uh, tribe, if you will, or of the right, uh, not tribe, but the right uh, clan of Levites. You boys are in charge of the ark and you got to carry it. Find the poles. Go back to, to Gibeah. Get the poles, guys. This, this is the great version. Get the poles, guys, because we got to get the poles back in that ark. you got to carry in the presence of God. He will be born on men, not on anything else. So he got rid of the boards and the big wheels. And I'm not saying we get rid of boards and churches, so don't misunderstand what I'm telling you. <laughs> A lot of people take that and go, oh, Greg said we need to dissolve the boards. <laughs> we get it, need to get them in the right place. That's all I'm saying. And then what happens? He goes down and he gets these men and they grab hold of the ark, they get the poles in there and they carry it, lift it up on their shoulders and they don't do anything but take six steps and they make a blood sacrifice. They take six steps and they make a blood sacrifice. They take six steps and they make a blood sacrifice. Six is the, representative, uh, is the number that represents man and I believe there's so much prophetic symbolism here, and I'm not telling you, I didn't hear this anywhere, but just out of my heart, I believe that those six steps represent what God will allow you to carry, and then you've got to allow Him to do the rest 
and, and allow him to cover what you're doing. Does that make sense? So six steps allows what strength he gives you to do for him, and you've got to then stop and allow him to cover you. Because guess what it was? The sacrifice represents blood. And whenever you take those six steps and you have, uh, you make a sacrifice, you take six steps and you make a sacrifice, you're leaving a trail of blood behind you because what, and, it's, and to me, there's a prophetic symbolism of where we are at today because everything that we do must be covered in the blood of Christ. Our, our, to the glory of Christ to cover our hind hearts, to cover our tails. Whatever we do, we leave, we go in the wake of the covering of the blood of Christ. Hallelujah. His justification, His righteousness, His restitution of relationship and fellowship. Amen? Hallelujah. Six steps in the sacrifice. Six steps in the sacrifice. It took that, I believe, to repent. And to show a heart of, of repentance for all the mistakes that had been made in handling the presence of God. That's the second prayer, but that's what it seems right to come in my heart. Does it say baptism in the days and hours? I don't, I don't see that in Scripture. I don't see that. Well, I don't know that they were that far. I was going to actually go look on the map and see where that Obedino place was at compared to Jerusalem. Because they're going back to Jerusalem. I don't, I don't think it's really, really far. I don't know, though. I don't know. I think every six steps of the sacrifice is like a whole ordeal, a whole worshiping session, a whole... I don't know. I, I just know it says that they took six steps and they had a blood sacrifice. Do you know what it is? Well, the thing about that blood sacrifice, it, and, and we're there, we're right there right now because people do not know the covenant we have with God. I mean, it's that people really understand the covenant we have through this blood. And I think it's just talking. If they go along, they were walking out the covenant. They, yeah, they had more revelation yeah. about that covenant. Yeah. Just to do it again and to, to know more about what that covenant was. Amen. Check it on you. Oh, man, that's awesome. Praise the Lord. It's 8 o'clock, so we're going to stop. I'm going to where we're going. But, man, it's, it's been an awesome journey where we've come from and learned there's so much, such a richness in learning about how to properly host and, and guard and engender an atmosphere for the presence of God in our midst. How to handle it properly. How to handle it properly. 